0: Yale Podcast Network. Welcome to Yale Emergency Medicine Podcast. This is Tom Balga, and today we have two very special guests with us. First, we have Dr. Richard Pierce, he is a pediatric intensive care attending at Yale New Haven Hospital, and Dr. Mark Auerbach. he is a pediatric emergency department attending. Today we're going to talk about pediatric sepsis in the community hospitals. So welcome guys. And I guess to start off with, Dr. Pierce, can you go over pediatric sepsis and what that actually is? Sure. We think of sepsis as an
1: overwhelming response to inflammation, uh, predominantly due to uh, infection. It can come from viruses or bacteria, but the overwhelming infection response that leads to hemodynamic uh, instability that we know as septic
0: shock. Okay. And how would that be different than sepsis in an adult?
1: There are several reasons why pediatric sepsis is different from sepsis in an adult. First is that children generally have very healthy hearts and very healthy vascular systems. This leads to the child's ability to compensate for uh, infection or cytokine levels or intravascular volume loss for quite some time before displaying some of the clinical signs we associate with shock, such as low blood pressure. Tachycardia is early, uh, and in, just like adults, uh, in children with shock. Uh, however, they, children are able to maintain their blood pressure for a little bit longer times than adults. This also leads to a more precipitous drop in hemodynamic stability uh, once the patient's ability to compensate is uh, is
2: exhausted. So, Rick, we deal with a broad spectrum of age groups in the children's hospital, but certainly in the community hospital. They have from birth to death What age do you consider where you would uh, transition your frame from a pediatric sepsis physiology to a more adult physiology? A very challenging question, uh, Mark. Um, I would say any
1: adolescent that is generally adult-sized, we would treat very similarly and think of very similarly uh, as an uh, an adult septic case. However, as they get younger and uh, have less muscle mass, then um, we think of that more in a pediatric sepsis uh, realm. And as they get to be very young uh, within weeks of birth, uh, then that's a very different frame of mind as well.
0: So I was looking and it said uh, in some of the journals I was reading, it said that sepsis is the leading cause of pediatric death worldwide. Is that true?
1: Yes, I I would probably agree with that, especially in the developing world. uh, Overwhelming infection and cardiovascular collapse due to infection is very, very common. Uh, And this can be uh, from malaria or other very prevalent diseases in the developing world.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. And so what are some of the causes of sepsis as far as, you know, we generally think of sepsis as being caused by bacterial infections with a whole range of types of infections there. But there's also other causes, viral Fungal, um, anything else? Absolutely. Any of
1: those things can cause uh, sepsis, especially in children that may have not have fully developed immune systems. Or for whatever reason, malignancy or um, cancer or other treatments, their immune system is compromised. So certainly bacterial sepsis is uh, still sort of the most common that we think about. And the etiology of that is going to be different based on different age groups uh, of children. But uh, we can certainly have hemodynamic instability that we would think of as septic shock in children with viruses and especially uh, with funguses, uh, fungi. However, uh, we would think of sepsis due to fungi in patients with uh, other comorbidities.
0: Okay. All right. Great. And can we go over some of the risk factors for sepsis in kids? There was just a really...
1: um, Nice article uh, called The Sprout Study, uh, done by um, Weiss uh, and his colleagues, that looked at both the incidence of sepsis uh, in pediatric intensive care units and the associated comorbidities, uh, and the risk factors for morbidity, rather. And so we know that if you have uh, any comorbidities, like a developmental delay or seizure disorder or genetic abnormalities, then you are at much, much higher risk of dying from sepsis. And that's in the pediatric intensive care unit. We also know that the extremes of age uh, are uh, the highest risk for sepsis mortality as well. Uh, This would be in the NICU uh, predominantly, or a very young infant that went home and came back in with sepsis would be at a very high risk for mortality as well.
0: Okay, great. And also, you know, like AIDS as well, right? And uh, congenital heart disease. Absolutely, all
1: those patients would be at much higher risk.
0: And, you know, so we're seeing patients in the ED and the front lines. We really need to be asking, is this kid an otherwise healthy kid? And sometimes parents will look at you like, why are you asking that question? Well, you know, uh, at some of the smaller community hospitals, we might not get the kids with cardiac disease or congenital problems. uh, So it's always important just to ask about that. And the other thing you really need to ask about or at least look look is in dwelling devices, you know, because that also could set you up for sepsis. So let's just take frontline, patient comes into a community hospital. Let's start from the very beginning where mistakes often can occur, and that's through triage or different opportunities might present themselves. So one thing we see when we look at cases uh, is the ESI level. And so this is a level to determine how much resources would be needed on a patient. So some kids that might wind up being septic, Initially, they might be given an ES level of three or even potentially four. So what are some like missed opportunities out in triage that you can address?
2: So I think that's a great question, Tom. Some of this comes with experience. There's some objective findings like vital signs. Um, The challenging thing is that vital signs uh, can oftentimes be concerning while the patient in front of you may not appear as concerning and I think that that is the bread and butter of many of the children and infants that present to emergency departments. Uh, It's really finding that needle in the haystack and looking at those vital signs in the context of what's occurring in front of you. So a child that is screaming, that is fighting you potentially in an age-appropriate way at the terrible twos might be tachycardic and you might not be able to get a blood pressure. Um, whereas that same child at uh, two years of age that's sleeping in mom's arms that uh, you know really doesn't respond too much when you take that blood pressure may have a normal blood pressure, but that might be an ominous finding. So I think putting those vital signs within the typical growth and development and expectations in terms of what a child's can and is doing in front of you, um, and particularly trying to use techniques like distraction in the parents to help put that child in what would be a more normal or typical state for them as opposed to a state of fear or anxiety.
0: Yeah, that's perfect. Sometimes what we'll see is, just what you're mentioning, the nurse on triage is struggling to get vital signs. They send them back and they presume that the primary nurse is going to go ahead and get the vital signs. Meanwhile, the patient has been here for an hour, and we have very little, if any, vital signs on the patient. And so, you know, Mark, you and I have talked about this, is what vital signs should we be getting in kids? So kind of across the board, we said, let's just have them do all vital signs on all children. And so I think that's really helped. And we've actually went ahead and done some analysis and metrics on these, and we've kind of addressed that with frontline providers uh, to tr- really try to keep an eye on this. If you, if you think you're getting 100% compliance on vital signs, I would ask you to take a look. All right, the other thing that's really important is if you're going to give any medications, you really need to know the weight of the patient, right? So the weight has to be accurate and it really needs to be done in kilograms, both weight in kilograms, documented in kilograms, and dose related in kilo- kilograms. So Rick, what do you think about, like, sepsis alerts that we're doing for adults? Should we d- be doing that for kids? Are they helpful, not helpful?
1: In the pediatric ICU, we recently instituted a septic alert system through our electronic medical record. And I would say that it hasn't really been that helpful for us, only because our um, radar is so up for sepsis anyway that we're always thinking about that in our in our children. Uh, and so we really haven't found much difference In things like uh, time to antibiotics or time to fluid administration, which are critical in the early identification of sepsis. Perhaps Mark has had a different experience in the emergency room.
2: No, I would share in that, and, and I do worry whether it's an um, alert system or the ESI, that um, potentially uh, it can become the boy or girl who cried wolf, where mm-hmm. you may um, get so many uh, abnormal findings where you're having patients getting up triaged to level two because of abnormal vital signs or a sepsis alert asking you to activate a sepsis order set, that you may lose that basic common sense, frankly, of having a assumption that any child in front of you could be septic. So I would say that I would echo some of um, Rick's uh, findings that this hasn't changed our practice. And at the same time, I worry that it may have uh, caused an over-reliance on these triggers. I think that the concept is fantastic. Um, I uh, hope that someday we'll have figured out the uh, equations to predict a a little bit better because right now there's a fair amount of false positives. And in fact, it may actually lead to um, us lowering our radar for patients where that's not going off. I don't, think,
1: okay. I don't think any electronic medical record screening system can really replace the uh, clinical acumen and having a high clinical index of suspicion yeah. uh, in the diagnosis of sepsis. Okay.
0: And how about order sets? Do you think that's helpful to kind of guide frontline providers as to what to be ordering in pediatric sepsis and what do you do it uh, age-based, weight-based?
1: In addition to the sepsis identification bundle uh, outrolling on our uh, PICU, this was in conjunction with a sepsis order set, and this has, I think, led to some beneficial changes because you may not always uh, know what's the most appropriate antibiotic or antibiotic combinations, and you might not have exactly been able to remember how much fluid the patient has gotten or potentially should get in milliliters per kilogram. And so the sepsis uh, order bundles uh, have, I think, improved our uh, time to medication, uh, appropriateness of medication, and our time to appropriate monitoring.
2: Yeah, I would echo that in the ED. I think whether it's the selection of antibiotics where there may not have been a standard of practice and people may have been ordering things that needed pharmacy approval or might not have been available in the ED, uh, the standardization of the process with an order set really allows um, money less clicks. And uh, I've heard some people say math kills, you know, avoids that need for a calculation and uh, hopefully allows you, uh, particularly when you're not taking care of a certain population so I would use the example in the ED of we don't take care of as many 2-, 3-, and 4-day-olds where the antibiotic choices may be different and might be dependent on creatinine and other things. So um, I would say that um, exactly uh, to echo what Rick said, that those order sets have made our lives much easier and I think the care much safer for the patients.
0: Okay. So if we have a very sick child that comes in and they bring them into our resuscitation room, what are a couple of the questions we really want to be asking mom or dad or the care provider? Yeah, so I think from the ED
2: perspective, what what is their level of concern? Why are they here? And I know that this gets drilled down to us in medical school quite frequently. But what is the chief complaint? What are they worried about? Um, they're It could be a patient with a fever in front of you, that their concern is more along the lines of what we term fever phobia, that they think their child looks well, but they're very worried because their understanding is that fever is dangerous and that a fever of 103 um, could be life-threatening. And I would contrast that with a family that the child may have a fever, but their main focus and concern, which would be heightening my concern about sepsis, is the child is not acting right. Something is wrong. And I think that um, the... um, concerns that we have um, often focused on in some of these patients is just there's a patient with a fever in room two, and I think that's losing sight potentially of what the parent's primary concern is, which uh, a parent really has a gestalt that is as good, if not better, than sometimes our clinical radar for sepsis.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, and also, you know, for me, one question I ask is, when was the child last right? You know, uh, what what is the progression and how how did things unfold? Um, and then just kind of back up a little bit, what other things are very important for past medical history? You know, sometimes if you're not seeing a lot of kids, you might not ask about, you know, is this a, really a term baby, especially with a sick kid in front of you? Uh, vaccinations can actually come off the radar when you got another a sick kid with you. What other things would you ask for past medical history that might be critical? Any major hospitalizations or surgeries, I think, are key. The
1: presence or absence of any indwelling catheters or tubes that the patient has, especially in uh, the children that are uh, neurologically uh, impaired or delayed. Uh, they may have uh, catheterizations at home or or other tubes that are, that are indwelling, such as a VP shunt. Uh, and then if they're immunocompromised in any way uh, because of any uh, m- medical problems, would also be very, very concerning for sepsis. Okay.
2: Uh, And I guess adding on to the immunocompromised, uh, the chronic steroid use um, and uh, some of the, I don't know if homeopathic is the right word, but there are some uh, less evidence-based medicines such as putting in central lines for Lyme disease and chelation therapy and other uh, chronic anti-inflammatory use that um, we are seeing more and more of. And uh, some of those agents may have side effects such as suppressing the immune response or uh, suppressing the uh, hypothalamic pituitary response.
0: Okay. So we've really been working in addressing our pediatric population and really trying to do the best we can for sick kids when they come in. And one of the big problems we've had over time, and, uh, and we know that just working nationally on this with EMSC, is equipment becomes a problem. So one thing we've done is we really try to get sick kids into our resuscitation room. And that In that room, we try to focus with all our equipment for a sick kid right there so we don't have folks leaving the room to get stuff. Can you comment on that at all, Rick?
1: That seems like an excellent practice. In the the pediatric ICU at Yale New Haven Children's Hospital, we have the appropriate sized equipment immediately available. And even with that, we still have size-based equipment sheets and medication sheets that we put in every single patient's room all the time to help us reduce error. Having that immediately available and having it pulled out, even if you think you might want to consider using it, is probably a very safe practice.
0: Okay
2: and i would echo a word that you said tom of resuscitation i think sometimes people think about this as code equipment and particularly in a emergency department that may be more uh accustomed to taking care of adults that you are waiting until a patient maybe is in a m- more significant state of extremis so i like the concept of if you're thinking about this patient potentially needing resuscitation taking that boy scout uh approach of always be prepared getting a reference potentially even getting that equipment at the bedside and not thinking about it as a code cart that is not accessed unless the patient loses their pulse.
0: Yeah, great. So one thing we've done in emergency medicine over time is we've really changed the teamwork in emergency medicine. So what do I mean by that? Well, if you looked at an ED 20 years ago, basically the next patient that was ready to be seen would be seen by a PA or a doc... Or, um, or APRN. So today that has changed. Now we have room one through ten for one doc and one PA, or eleven through fifteen for another team. So we've made it we've created all these divisions. And one thing we're looking at is taking some of those divisions down. And so how does this apply to what we're talking about today? So if we have a sick kid that comes in and they go into one of the resuscitation rooms, we actually might have two or three providers in that room at the same time all working together. Uh, Initially for that few minutes are just absolutely critical. And I've found, and this is just my experience, that that seems to really help. um, And it's building more teamwork. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I would agree that when we are well resourced and have a,
2: a, a large team, um, that that is beneficial to the patient. But I would also state that when we have a smaller team or a more slimmed down staffing model, that those are the patients that often are the needle that's lost in the haystack, that patient that is not identified initially, potentially put back out in the waiting room. And for those nurses and non-physician providers that are listening, you can save a life. If you see something, say something. If that child just doesn't look Right to you, and that parent keeps coming back up and saying, "You know not I got a date to get to, and I want can't wait another hour, but something's really wrong with my child. I'm really worried can you you know bring them back um, I, I would say that you know that sense of teamwork where everyone is taking responsibility for that patient um, and um telling with that the skill set of that team and, and you know whether or not that department and we'll probably get this to this later on is the appropriate location for definitive care or if they might need uh, care across a continuum and transfer to a more specialized center.
0: Okay. Great. And let's go on to physical exam. So we really rely a lot on technology. However, in these sick kids, I feel like physical exam is absolutely critical. And if you just start with vital signs, if you have a kid that has persistent tachycardia, that's concerning. you give him fluids, That's not improving. That's a sign, you know, you need to regroup and, and see what's really going on. Any thoughts on this, Rick?
1: Absolutely. Tachycardia is the first sign of a patient going into a compensated shock. And it's not until they reach the second stage or uncompensated shock that other vital sign abnormalities start to come, like uh, blood pressure drops. And the capillary refill time, or when you press on the child's skin, how long does it take for that color to come back, becomes greater than normal, which is about three seconds. And we use it as a marker of skin perfusion, which can be altered in sepsis uh, or prolonged in sepsis. Uh, uh, it can be abnormally high or abnormally short, depending on the disease process. So any changes in the patient's perfusion. or or pulse quality would indicate that they are that second stage of uncompensated shock and and really need to have resources uh, marshaled around them urgently.
0: Okay. Anything else?
2: I I think um, within that compensated versus uncompensated, the other things I would think about in a pediatric patient that sometimes are lost is wet diapers and how frequently those are needing to be changed. And really, again, that parent perspective of mental status. So hypoperfusion to the brain and excessive somnolence, really the child that worries most of us in the children's hospital more than anything is frankly not the child that worries many parents who's screaming and crying. It's the child that we put an IV into and they kind of just stare over at you and don't scream and cry.
1: I would absolutely agree with that. That's always a, a very very concerning situation.
0: And when, the other thing we've really tried to uh, accomplish in the ED is getting kids changed and getting them out of the park uh, and getting them out of their, all their clothes and be able to look at their skin. So we've really went out and bought pediatric Johnny coats and really trying to uh, push that. And so. Really, it's supposed to have all patients change, but we've made a practice where six years and under, they need to be in a Johnny coat. And I think that's good just because you could pick up, you know, how, how the kid's breathing. You might not appreciate it out in the waiting room. Any thoughts on getting kids in gowns and looking at their skin?
1: I think a complete physical exam in an infant uh, that you're concerned about sepsis with is essential. And when the seconds matter, uh, such as a patient in septic shock, um, you need to be able to do that exam quickly and thoroughly and and accurately, and um, you can't worry about trying to you know squeeze the pants over the diaper or, or whatever else is there. So having the patient ready to go in in a johnny coat for a quick and easy and thorough physical exam uh, is essential.
2: Yeah, and there are subtle findings. Um, you know, there's the sentinel injuries of child abuse, but then within sepsis, there are subtle findings of um, fulminans and you might see petechia that. Could be an ominous sign, and we all have heard these stories. Some of us um, fortunately um, have uh, had the experience where the parents might recognize this and save us. Um, but you know uh, finding that petechia on the left butt cheek that um, you know the mom is asking about may be a sign that this child uh, is starting to have some type of problem with their coagulation profile or platelets. All right,
0: great. So one thing we try to do is, uh, with our education program, we're trying to do more simulation. And as we do in-situ simulation with Mark's team, uh, one thing we noticed is folks are kind of late calling the PDED about doing a transfer. Uh, And we also see this in real life when we review cases. Would you like to see us call early on cases, even though the patient might not get transferred? Or when would you like to call? And what kind of information do you want when when you get that call?
2: Yeah, I'll take the first part of this, and then I'll pass over to Rick. I think that there's two pieces to this, Tom. So one is the call because you're concerned or you have a clinical question and potentially want just to double check, you know, for instance, this child's febrile, they look really well, they're super tachycardic, is a heart rate of 200 okay, you know, and you might say to me, he's crying, he's fighting with us. Um, And and I think that's a very okay reason to call the PZD and potentially for what I would term more of a, you know, a a consult or a different perspective. I think that that child that you would put in the category of, I am worried, I feel this patient needs um, rapid resuscitation and definitive care, that's where, whether here or in another institution, calling your critical care transport team to actually mobilize movement of that patient in addition to the consultation is an important thing to distinguish. So I will speak on behalf of our team before uh, Rick even does to say the words that I like to put out there, call early, call often, and then I'll pass it to Rick Great. to hear more of his perspective.
1: I absolutely agree with uh, Mark's call early, call often. And uh, just so folks out there know, whenever you call through y Access to the pediatric a critical care transport line. You'll be connected to a pediatric intensivist 24 hours a day, and uh, they're happy to discuss the case with you while dispatching uh, our pediatric critical care transport team. And uh, once they get on site, they can help uh, with offering opinions and assessments and getting an IV or or whatever else may need to be to be a little bit. Uh, uh, help, help with. And then uh, we're certainly happy to give advice over the phone as well and uh, work on getting the patient uh, back to us, either in the pediatric intensive care unit or uh, if they've turned around the floor.
2: And, and, and I, I think what we've drilled in on some of these EDs call early, I think the call often piece is just something I want to come back to. So you've called the critical care transport team. They're on their way out. They're in an ambulance. They'd love to hear an update about that patient and potentially answer some of those questions that you might have, uh, whether it's about medication dosing, access, intubation, ventilatory management, um, you know, uh, there's no reason to wait until they physically arrive there in the state of information technology. Uh, it's really um, uh, you know, again, calling often, don't feel that the one call should do everything. Call back, let us know what's going on, and we're happy to answer any questions that might come up.
0: Yeah, I think that would be really helpful, and that comes off our radar, so I think that's something we can improve on. And what do you think about telemedicine? There's a lot of talk about telemedicine, but I think there's definitely a role in the patients that are sick, like uh, these pediatric septic cases. Uh, Any thoughts on telemedicine?
1: We don't have that capability in our pediatric ICU yet. All we can offer is a friendly conversation when you call for transfer. Uh, But we have gotten uh, pictures of x-ray or pictures of... um, of, uh, EKGs or something that's sent to us, and and we are can comment on that, but really it is still just a a conversation and an opinion at this point.
2: And 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 I, I would frame Rick actually when we look at the telemedicine literature, I think it it the definitions vary, but I would say that you are doing a type of telemedicine with the calling often where you're managing a patient together, you're providing some consultation, and this does get at not putting the technology in front of what the purpose is. So you could have the most sophisticated technology that can listen to a patient with a stethoscope and that That might be equivalent or not even as good as that human-to-human conversation where you're having an updated, hey, this happened with the patient. Um, We wanted to get some guidance as to what we should do. Uh, So, uh, you know, I I would encourage people not to frame telemedicine solely as what they see on TV or in Star Trek.
0: (laughs) I'd agree with everything, (laughs) Mark. All right. So sometimes it's hard to sort out what actually is sepsis. So if you could talk about sepsis versus cardiac etiology. And some of the cases that have come up throughout the state have been, you know, misses in, like, myocarditis. And I've heard some discussion about, you know, ECHO being done in a PDED and, and a PICU. But do you think there's a role for ECHO out in the community hospitals?
1: I would say this really is going to depend on... Um... The age of the patient and what you're seeing on physical exam. In the neonatal age group uh, or the newborns, I think that cardiac disease absolutely has to be considered as an etiology of the infant presenting in shock. In fact, if you look at the incidence of the major cause of neonatal septic shock B strep or GBS. It's about the same in a healthy newborn that goes home. It's about the same as the healthy newborn that goes home and comes back in with what we call ductal dependent critical congenital heart disease. That is, as that patent ductus arteriosus closes, uh, the patient lacks blood supply either to their body or to their lungs and starts to go into uh, uncompensated shock. So Thinking about both these things simultaneously in the newborn uh, is essential, and treating both as you're considering them is also essential, both with okay. antibiotics in the case of sepsis and prostaglandins in the setting. Of congenital heart disease. Now, out of the immediate newborn period, it becomes uh, less of a concern to get um, some of those things started right away, and you have a little more time to think about things like the physical exam, particularly are there crackles, is the liver down, or is there a sternotomy scar in a patient that you're just meeting? These are all things that may tip your um, reasoning more towards uh, cardiac disease, which would be a very different treatment algorithm.
2: Okay. Tom, coming back to the question, I think, with the ED lens on this, where point-of-care ultrasound or POCUS has become a toolkit for many of our emergency medicine attendings and particularly the recent yeah. graduates where people are doing fellowship training and, and the like in this, I, I would, you know, say that ultrasound and um, point-of-care uh, ultrasonography has a use, I think, for certain things like pericardial fusion mm-hmm. and looking at cardiac function. I would really caution the non-pediatric cardiologist's. Um, about looking for a ductal-dependent cardiac lesion. Uh, I, I would say that, um, you know, along the lines of what Rick was mentioning, empiric treatment, potentially looking for some of those clinical findings. Um, but uh, I, I think the types of uh, machines we have, as well as the skill set in this domain, are something that I would caution the use of our echocardiography machines um, as ultrasound uh, by an emergency physician versus as a specialist provider. Um, And certainly something like a pericardial effusion is a fairly straightforward uh, skill set, but something like looking for tetralogy of Fallot or aortic coartation, I would be concerned about, you know, consuming your resources trying to do that as opposed to start a prostate infusion. Even in the ICU
1: where we have great experience with ultrasound, like in the ED, I'm sure, we harp on our fellows is to look at the heart and just see, is the function high, low, or normal? Right. Is there an effusion And is it dilated? And that's really all all we go to look at when we do our ultrasounds.
0: And that's kind of what I was thinking is, you know, how is the squeeze? Is it an effusion? And kind of moving on. Um, but yeah, there's just a lot of discussion about that. All right, let's go towards, now you have the patient, uh, you're getting IV access, you're struggling a little bit, IO... Probably be the next route if you can't get it, uh, even though you might be using ultrasound. Any thoughts about IO, central lines, or?
2: IO, IO, IO. That's yeah, what perfect. I would say. So I think that um, this is, should not be something in a septic patient that you're using ultrasound to do an ultrasound guided IV. If you are having a patient that's in compensated shock and you're concerned about sepsis, um, potentially taking that 90 seconds, uh, two minutes, three minutes to try for IVs. Uh, if you have a patient that's in decompensated shock, getting that IO out. And um, I-, I think changing the lens from the nurse's perspective that getting not getting an IV is their failure. This is a patient that is very challenging. The central line piece, um, uh, my perspective with our fellows and trainees is really that this is an ICU procedure. There are cases such as in severe hemorrhagic uh, um, shock from trauma where we might put in a cordis in an older child. I'd be interested to hear Rick's perspective on the current um, approach by the transport team in terms of central lines happening in community settings or outside of the uh, ICU.
1: Sure, our transport team do not place central lines and uh, we would prefer to do all of those procedures in the ICU mainly because they take time to set up. Uh, They can be very high risk in some patients with abnormal vasculature and if not done appropriately, the uh, infection risk is very very high Mm -hmm. later on as well. So if you can get one or two IOs and get the patient up to us, uh, we can take the access from there from the pediatric intensive care unit.
0: All right. So now we have some access. Now we're going to give fluids. Just want to discuss normal saline, is that still our go-to? Or ringers, what's the when would you use ringers lactate? And you know, we've really tried to get our providers to do pull push um and not just, you know, ordering something and relying on that all the fluids all to be, you know, given over just a hanging bag. Can you just discuss ringers versus uh normal saline?
1: Sure to me um the discussion between ringers or saline is, is really not that important. It's how fast you give it and, and, yeah. and when do you give it and how do you give it. And so more the speed of administration rather than the character of the fluids. Do you guys feel strongly in ED? I,
2: I would agree. I think uh, isotonic fluids. Uh, yeah. Sometimes we've seen people getting some um, medical school memories of uh, n- pediatric patients needing uh, half normal or quarter normal saline. So if the patient's critically Ill in front of you isotonic fluids, whether that's normal saline or ringers and A uh, rapid but controlled rate of administration. So the three-way stop clock and push pull is a nice way to do that. All right, great.
0: So let's move on to some labs. So you're gonna draw some labs on this kid. Uh, Blood cultures is one set still enough, or before you give antibiotics, and is that still critical that you get blood cultures before antibiotics?
1: I don't think so. Uh, We've had some cultures come back positive after antibiotics, and there are binders uh, of antibiotics in the blood culture uh, bottles. So we really don't want any delay in the antibiotic administration. So if the patient needs other procedures, such as a lumbar puncture or or any other uh, diagnostic procedure, uh, really not delaying antibiotics for those. Uh, Give the antibiotics first and and then worry about getting the other diagnostic information uh, once those are going. Okay.
2: Yeah, I would, I would echo that, uh, that, uh, certainly, um, we all had it drilled into us in certain rotations in our training um, with infectious disease specialists of the importance of antibiotics not being delivered before administrate, before obtaining uh, cultures. Uh, I would say that that's very different in the set of a, a patient with sepsis. And um, I think the LP is a prime example of something that actually might need to atri- iatrogenic harm. Uh, so taking a patient that has a low level of volume and potentially a poorly functioning heart and squeezing them in a ball is a fairly effective way of taking them from a perfusing rhythm to a non-perfusing rhythm. So uh, I would um, caution people to, uh, you know, think back to medical school and feel the need to culture everything before antibiotics. I would agree with Rick that if they are in fulminant sepsis, likely something will still grow out, and if not, we'll worry about that later.
0: Okay. All right, so let's say you order your antibiotics and you're in a community hospital Let's say in northern Connecticut or whatever, and all of a sudden you get the antibiotic through a tube system, and it's in the syringe, and you don't have a syringe pump. Some any thoughts on now nah, what do you do? The kids will be transferred a little bit, a little while they're on teams on their way, and now you've got a syringe filled of antibiotics.
1: I would just reemphasize that that the timed antibiotics is critical in sepsis, and we know from several studies in resource uh, rich countries like the United States even though we know that it's important, we still sort of collectively drop that ball. And antibiotics take one to two to three hours to get in. And we really want this treatment in in the first hour, which means by the time they hit your ED, you got to be thinking about sepsis. You got to be using the order set to get whatever antibiotics are available in your specific location in and and into the patient. And we we always uh, advocate for Uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics in the beginning, and then we can tailor that down uh, once they reach the ICU and we have several days of hindsight.
2: Yeah. Okay. And with that question about the syringe full of antibiotics, I think that uh, working together, whether it's with your pharmacist or potentially even calling the critical care transport team, I could see a situation where that would be completely safe with the use of uh, ceftraxone, which is a common agent. And yeah. I could see a situation where that might be not so safe to push an antibiotic over a period of minutes like with vancomycin. So um, you know, I, I, I think working within the systems that you are living in, um, everything might not be in your smart pump. You might not have a syringe right. pump, um, and uh, certainly taking that small amount of time to uh, ensure that that antibiotic is safe to deliver over a syringe, uh, which uh, for many it is, but for some it is not. And I think uh, if you're not certain, either looking at a pharmacopoeia or contacting the critical care team.
0: And I think that's important to know is, you know, how are you getting these products? Like when you're going to order antibiotics, what do you get in? What do you have available? all your medications and if you're not seeing a lot of kids you need to really keep on top of that cuz these things change and they're very dynamic all right so let's go kind of back up a little bit to your labs so now you get, you order some uh, labs and you ordered a lactic a lactic acid for the kids uh, what's a high level and what are your thoughts about uh, lactic acid and is this you know does this represent how the kids perfusing like it would be for adults
1: Sure. Many providers are probably pretty familiar with the new sepsis guidelines, the sepsis three guidelines, which really incorporated lactic as a central lactic acid as a central biomarker uh, in those guidelines. And in children, lactic acid will go up in the signs of hypoperfusion. Normal range may depend on your specific laboratory, but for us it's greater than two. However, a study in the New England Journal of Medicine from the nineteen seventies shown that you can have a lactate go to three in a child who's crying. Uh, And so there can be Minor increases uh, in that as well. In the setting of septic shock, though, lactic acid is a little bit more unreliable in children. And that's probably because in adults that are septic, There's a lot of hypoperfusion to the muscles, and it's the muscle mass that produces the lactic acid. In children with variable amounts of muscle mass, it may be high, it may be low, and it may not be as reliable an indicator of their shock state. And so the pediatric septic shock guidelines uh, haven't really caught up to the sepsis 3 guidelines in adults, in part due to the unreliability of some of the biomarkers like lactic acid.
0: Okay. Mark, any other thoughts on that?
2: Uh, I, I would, uh, say that a... You know, normal lactate does not rule out sepsis, and echoing what Rick said, a high lactate should not make you assume a patient is septic, particularly with point-of-care testing in our emergency department. There's often hemolysis in addition to some of the things that we've been discussing. And if you have a well child in front of you that's screaming and crying that you're checking laboratories on for another reason and their lactate is four, um, I would not presume sepsis, uh, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I think that may be a little bit different than what would happen with an adult.
0: Okay. So the other area that gets a little bit confusing, especially for in the community area, is the kid comes in, has a fever, seizing in front of you, was seizing at home, you, you uh, do your regular resuscitation, you give him meds if you need to, um, stop seizing, whatever, but you get a lactic acid back, and it's like seven, or and he also has a fever. How do you sort out sepsis? and seizure? Can they be together? Or how do you sort that out? That's a tough one.
2: <laughs> uh, I think that particularly with, with seizures requiring some time for the post-ictal state. So after a typical febrile seizure, which we probably would not see that patient seizing in front of us unless they live next door to the hospital, um, lasting less than 10 to 15 minutes, um, you will still see a period of somnolence, decreased mental status, potentially some what appears to be hypoperfusion. And I think giving that child a small amount of time, um, five to 10 minutes, not necessarily hours, uh, to assess for return to baseline and improvement. Uh, The laboratory markers of a septic patient including a leukocytosis and a lactic acidosis as well as a uh, finding of potentially um, retention of carbon dioxide are certainly all going to be there in a patient who had just finished seizing. So uh, I think that's a difficult situation. Um, certainly a otherwise well patient with no risk factors that has a seizure that is self-limited. Uh, I would typically not put in the sepsis bucket until I see prolonged symptomatology. However, if that child is someone that is what we were speaking to before, such as someone with a VP shunt, uh, I probably would have a very high index of suspicion related to sepsis. So a tincture of time, not hours, but minutes.
1: Okay. I agree with everything that, that Mark said and, and would advocate for some vital sign changes that may be able to help you tell the difference in the seizure. Typically, the baby or child will be hypertensive as opposed to hypotension we associate with sepsis. And then the response to therapy over minutes, as Mark said, uh, investigating that. If the seizure is uh, clinical seizure is treated uh, with uh, benzodiazepines uh, and then the patient's vital signs return back to normal, uh, then you may be um, less likely dealing with a sepsis situation.
0: All right. Great. And Mark, can you just comment on your thoughts on simulation in to uh, versus in a regular SIMS lab and what benefits or th- your thoughts on uh, simulation? Yeah, I think
2: training and having a team that is thinking about sepsis and having attention to this as being a problem that they need to be finding that needle in a haystack So the detection of sepsis is something that can be very challenging through simulation, uh, because simulation is a little bit better at practicing once we have detected sepsis. Um, So for the in situ simulation exercises, you could have secret shoppers and patients coming in with aberrant vital signs and making sure that people are having attention to detail. I would say that the more typical simulations that we've been conducting really are looking at some of the comments that you made related to the tools, equipment, resources, and systems of care. So even thinking within that simulation about Again, if the simulation involved taking care of a septic patient, you're 25 minutes in and no one ever talked about calling to transport that patient out, that's a rich opportunity for debriefing and discussion and systems improvement. Um, so I think that the center-based simulation can be very helpful to have people um, practice and gain knowledge and skills. Uh, The in-situ simulation is more helpful to function in a team as well as operationalize those knowledge and skills in the complex systems we work in.
0: Okay, perfect. And Rick and Mark, if you can give us maybe a couple pitfalls that you see from uh, patients that are transported to the PDED and then ultimately to the PICU, Uh, just, like, common themes that you see there are opportunities for improvement, you know, throughout the state.
1: I would say the biggest we see on transport is delay to antibiotic administration. Again, within the first hour, we really want those antibiotics in, broad-spectrum antibiotics, and then uh, calling us early. And um, as Mark uh, emphasized a couple of times, calling us again if the situation or the vital sign changes uh, at all.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree with both of those. Something that we Used to see quite a bit more frequently, and, and um, you know, Rick can comment if we've been seeing this lately, and I've just been missing it, is uh, a focus on putting a definitive airway in quite early. So um, you really can get yourself into a bad situation, uh, similar to what we were describing with the LP. If you take a patient that is intravascularly volume deplete and has a poorly functioning heart, and now insert a breathing tube and positive pressure ventilation and decrease their return, they can go from a state of perfusion to a state of. Uh, non-perfusion and potentially asystole. So um, thinking about the use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, um, and certainly my lens is that that has changed um, those those patients uh, where we typically and in the past may have been worried and wanted to control something and put it in a breathing tube. Is this something that you're seeing as often, Rick, where these patients are getting intubated and sort of arresting or or coding during intubations?
1: Fortunately, we're not seeing too many arrest situations during uh, intubation. So I think maybe Maybe outside providers are at least addressing the volume status before they go down that route. That's always something we're happy uh, to talk about when you call us. Uh, on the and, uh, you'll reach a pediatric intensivist, and, uh, and and they'd be happy to discuss the, the challenges of any particular uh, clinical scenario that you may have. But uh, now with the advent of high flow and uh, CPAP, BiPAP available on transport, even all those modalities are available on transport. Um, the, we can usually get the patient uh, much more intravascularly loaded uh, and into a uh, place that has a lot more expertise in managing the pediatric airway.
2: Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on that related to a hospital that might be under-resourced and not have high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Um, I've heard uh, you know some of the community providers comment, well, the patient's going to need a tube. Uh, you know, for transport, and we want to make sure they're stable for transport. Uh, We all teach the comment I made before about getting the volume first. When is a good uh, set of findings or what is a good set of findings to support that, okay, maybe this patient is ready for a definitive airway? A very,
1: very challenging question that our transport team faces quite often. And um, many times when they get there, they'll have a long conversation with the primary care team there to talk about how things have been going over the past 30 minutes, hour, to see uh, are we going to be able to make it 30 minutes or an hour in the back of an ambulance or our helicopter to get back to the ICU. Uh, and so a lot of that is crystal ball and seeing where you think you've been and where you think you're going. And those are challenges. And the transport team loves to, to talk about that uh, and, and go over the specific barriers to each of the cases. Uh, regarding your, your second comment about what to do uh, and when to do it, I, I think – Volume loading is essential, and that's very challenging in these patients that have ongoing capillary leak, and uh, you can't seem to keep up with them. Uh, and so I would make sure that in if you are getting ready to intubate, that you have the appropriate uh, vasopressors either running or uh, on hand to immediately go uh, should the patient uh, have cardiovascular compromise during that. And then the choice of agents is also extraordinarily appropriate. Um, patients that are in uh, septic shock will typically do very well with ketamine, uh, which will uh, provide endogenous norepinephrine and epinephrine release and give you a little bit of blood pressure boost. Uh, and then things that we may not want to use would be atomidate, which would decrease your um, your um, Hydrocortisone uh, production through the inhibition of of 11 beta-hydroxylase.
2: Emrick, along those lines, are, uh, the typical atamide sucks uh, in the community hospital. What are your thoughts about sucks and rock? Uh, sucks versus rock? You know, many of our community providers. Uh, sucks is kind of in their back pocket and, and they remember back to their pes rotations and um, are, are trying to maybe calculate more complex things and use a, uh, a medication they 're not as accustomed to. What are your thoughts about benefits of uh, rock over sucks? In our ICU,
1: uh, we typically use uh, Vecuronium, very similar to ROC, and uh, very rarely use uh, succinylcholine. That being said, if a provider has familiarity with that, I think that they uh, should go with what they're comfortable with. In the otherwise normal child with septic shock, there's no real contraindication or added benefit to using succinylcholine, except that um, the paralysis will, of course, be be short-lived. Um, and uh, I would just comment that if you use a longer-acting agent that you may not be comfortable with, you want to make sure you have adequate sedation during the period. Uh, if you're comfortable using sucks, you may not always think about uh, keeping the patient sedated for that extra 30 minutes. Right. And then the choice of sedation agents can also be very mm. challenging in the septic shock situation. Uh, we would most often probably use fentanyl uh, over morphine, which may have a little more cardiovascular uh, effects.
2: Excellent. One other um, emerging topic, I think, in the uh, adult septic patient is the use of push dose pressors. Um, So I wanted to come back. I'm not sure if that's something that um, the transport team is doing or you would do, but, you know, uh, I've seen people that are uh, getting ready to intubate now with an epi uh, syringe and sort of this concept of, or norepi syringe, this concept of push dose pressures. If the pressor goes down, I'll give a small dose. Um, I have not bought into that. Uh, I'd be in, I'm a little bit concerned particularly related to dosing and, and um, the concept of math kills again. What, what are your thoughts?
1: We, we've seen kind of a resurgence in this and it was actually just published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine that if you give a low dose of epinephrine as a bolus, you get a slight blood pressure increase and then it goes away. <laughs> uh, and it's gotten some cute names like a dwindle dose or pepinephrine, uh, those kind of <laughs> things. Uh, however. Um, It's not really in my practice. I I think that if the patient needs uh, cardiovascular support, uh, I'm going to be ready to provide that support in a long-term situation. Now, uh, that's different than if I think the patient is uh, near or is actively coding during the resuscitation. uh, Then I wouldn't give a dwindle dose, as we say. I'd give the real thing and um, go from there. But in terms of just mini doses to uh, bump up the blood pressure, Uh, my opinion is you may not be solving the real problem and and you want to have a more definitive solution.
0: All right. Great. This has been awesome. Uh, So just as I kind of wrap up, so call early, call often, give antibiotics early. Anything else you want to add as just like a summary, Rick?
1: I guess we didn't talk about it too much, but giving fluids early and giving fluids often, um, there may be some concern by adult providers that you'll flood the lungs and cause pulmonary edema. And um, in children, that happens a little bit less often, and uh, that's a problem that we can deal with in the ICU a lot easier than a child who is under-resuscitated and uh, and maybe had a cardiovascular uh, collapse beforehand.
0: And you can always reassess them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and,
2: and uh, with the give fluids often, uh, I would just be explicit. So uh, you had alluded to this, Tom, but I think being more... Um, explicit, you know, uh, an order of this patient needs some fluids versus this patient needs 20 cc's per kilo push, push, pull over three minutes is a very different order and a different perception by the nurse. And certainly prioritizing those fluids with your nursing staff where this is fluids, 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 then antibiotics, uh, that fluids are not something that is thought of as an afterthought or potentially a niatrogenic problematic agent. Uh, I think in children, um, uh, under-resuscitation is much more of a prevalent problem than over-resuscitation with fluids.
1: Many, um, many providers may feel comfortable putting the pump on 999, and uh, and that's not the situation you want. Uh, the, in fact, the uh, your patient will have to weigh less than 4.1 kilos to put the pump on 999 and get the appropriate amount of volume in the appropriate amount of time. So unless you're running a NICU follow-up clinic, uh, you really <laughs> want to have a, a push-pull or... Um, in uh, our PICU and maybe already we have a m- massive volume infusers yeah. devices
0: all right well great thank you this has been awesome thank you very much Dr. Pierce and Dr. Erebach I appreciate it and um, thanks again thanks for listening thanks Tom it's a pleasure to
2: be here thank you awesome